If you would, uh, turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, reading verses 2 and 3, and then skipping down to verse 13. But I also encourage you to keep your Bibles open, because I'll be actually referencing James quite often in this, throughout this sermon. So taking a brief aside from going into the book of Psalms, and touching on a particular subject. So James chapter 1. beginning at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. On verse 13, or rather, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Man, this is the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you may give to us the humility to sit under your word. Father, I pray that you would give me the humility to speak your word in your words only and not my opinions or not my thoughts, but your word and your word only. And we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to bring about a transformation that could only come from your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the toughest exams in the world is an exam called the UPSC, which is in India, the Union Public Service Commission exam. This is an exam for anyone seeking civil services, such as Indian Police Service or the Indian Foreign Services. And this is an exam that is conducted over three stages over the span of three months. And all stages need to be clear before you go on to the next stage and finally to the last stage and complete that. Now it is said, according to statistics, that about 10 million people apply to take this test and only half actually show up for the test. In part, it's because of the intimidation or the anxiety that they feel about taking this incredibly tough exam. And according to statistics from the people who actually apply to actually who those, those who, who pass the exam they say that the success rate is less than 1%. Last week, as we went into Psalm 11, Psalm 11 made this stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it tells us in Psalm 11 that God stands in opposition towards the wicked. It's the position of enmity. But in contrast, it tells us in Psalm 11 that God, on the other hand, tests the righteous. 
a very different relationship. And so this morning, we talked a little bit about the testing of Christians last week, but I thought it might be helpful to explore this topic a little bit more this morning. And so that's the subject that we turn to, and that is the testing of the righteous. And to understand this topic or this doctrine of the testing of the righteous, we need to understand what a righteous person is, and we talked at length about what a righteous person is according to Psalm 11, according to the Scriptures as a whole, but to summarize it, a righteous person is a person who does righteousness first and primarily out of his love for God and reverence for God. A righteous person, according to the Scriptures, is a person who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose account is one of righteousness because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then that person does righteousness out of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that this faith isn't just an intellectual faith. It isn't just, yes, Jesus is Savior, but it is, it is an embracing faith. It's an embracing of Jesus Christ. It is a following of Jesus Christ with one's life for the rest of one's life. It is loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. According to the Scriptures, that is what a righteous person is. Now, while the UPSC exam is completed over the span of a few months, and it is an incredibly tough exam, I would argue that the testing of the righteous is a much more difficult exam, in part because the Christian is tested numerous times over the span of his or her life. And so first, I'd like to help us to, to clarify, to clarify for us what is a test? So we're talking about the testing of the righteous. It's helpful to understand what it means to be tested. And the book of James, and I think it's helpful when we look at the book of James, because James helps us to see what a test is not. So in James, the passage which is read, says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But then when you get to verse 13 of James chapter 1, it talks about temptation. In James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James gives us a contrast between, or a difference between, testing and temptation. Temptation, according to the book of James, temptation naturally is opposed to God. Temptation is against God. It's against the very nature of God. It tells us, let no one ever say that he is being tempted by God because God is not evil. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. So in other words, it's telling us that nobody is ever tempted by God because temptation is naturally bent towards evil. And because God himself is not evil, he would never tempt anyone towards evil. So 
the object of temptation is always to sin against God. Temptation always has to do with sin and evil. So James is telling us the difference between temptation and being tested is that temptation comes from within. Again, the word says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it comes from within. Yes, there might be an object outside of us that might be the object of our temptation, but it's not the very thing that is evil. It, the evil ultimately lurks within the heart. And that ultimately is what gives birth to sin. And sin is always against God. Testing, on the other hand, is from without. So consider the context of the book of James. James is written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And in his opening words, he says, Count it all joy when you suffer trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Right, so the difference is that we don't rejoice in temptation, but the Scriptures actually tell us to rejoice in trials, rejoice in the testing of your faith. More on that a little bit later. It sounds odd to count it all joy when you are being tested. But testing of the faith comes from without, not from within. The main objective of temptation is to get you to sin against God, to lure you away from God, to draw you away from God. And sin is more than, but not less than, dissatisfaction in Christ. But the main objective of testing is to get you to trust in God, to draw you closer to the Lord, not further away. So to kind of help us understand these differences better, there's good examples of the differences of both in the Scriptures. Many of you are familiar with the story of Job. Job's life was a sort of test, or he experienced tests in his own life. In Job chapter 1, verse 8, the Satan comes before the Lord, and the Lord says to Satan in Job 1.8, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Then later, and it shows that, right, that Job passed the test. Then later in Job chapter 2, verse 3, the same thing happens again. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. 
So two tests. And then later, we might even consider it a third test. In verse 9 of Job chapter 2, Then his wife said to her husband, Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So there's a testing of Job. Satan makes an accusation. God, the reason why Job holds fast to his faith in you is because he has no trials in his life. He has everything. He lacks nothing. Take away all that stuff. In fact, take away his health and watch, he will curse you to your face. A testing that's coming from without. And Job holds fast to his integrity. Continues to lean upon the Lord. Continues to trust in the Lord. And Job never sinned with his lips. And then an example of temptation. Many of you are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. David, the king of Israel, up on the rooftop of his palace when he should have been out with his armies, with his soldiers, battling and out on the field with that home. Sees a woman bathing, asks, commands his subjects to bring her to him, lies with her. She becomes pregnant, and in order to hide his sin, has her husband killed. He marries her until finally his sin finds him out. Right? That wasn't a testing. God was not testing David because that would have been a contradiction to the character of God, inciting his servants towards evil. No. David was lured by his own desires and sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against her husband, sinned against the nation of Israel as the, as the king of the people, but he ultimately sinned against God. Sin and temptation is always against God. And God does not tempt anyone toward sinning against him. But sin always comes from within, lured and enticed by one's own desires. As I said before, sin, at the very least, is a dissatisfaction in Christ. David had everything, and he wanted the one thing that he could not have. Isn't that the nature of sin? Isn't that the nature of sin in your own lives? To want the thing that you cannot have. especially when God is giving you something better. He saw, he took, he consumed, and then he would go on to regret. Isn't that the typical pattern of temptation? We see, we take, we consume, and we immediately regret. Thankfully, we have a God who is gracious towards us. The difference between test and temptation is the difference of intention. Temptation's intention is always towards evil, but the test's intention is always towards good. 
Now here in James chapter 1, verse 2, we have the word trial and have the word testing. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you'll find one particular Greek word that's used for testing and one for temptation. The context determines whether it's testing or temptation. But there's a particular word, a different word that's used in verse 3 when it says the testing of your faith. And this actually speaks to genuineness, which is very similar to what you see in 1 Peter chapter 1, where it talks about the tested genuineness of your faith. So kind of reading James chapter 1 verse 2 a little bit differently with these different definitions in mind, of these two Greek words that are used here in the passage, it would read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet tests of various kinds, for you know that the testing, that the tested genuineness of your faith produces steadfastness. That's why 1 Peter 1, 6, which by the way is also written to suffering Christians. He also says the same thing, counting it all joy when your faith is tested. So God's test over your life is the process by which he proves the genuineness of your faith. In a moment, I'll clarify what I mean by prove. But first, let's look at some examples in the Scriptures that show us the ways in which that God might prove your faith and mine, or test your faith and mine. It's not an exhaustive list of examples, but some examples anyway. One of the most repeated examples that we see in the scriptures of the testing of God's people is through persecution. Again, James is written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. The book of 1 Peter was written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And both authors are saying that this is a testing of one's faith. Revelation 2.10 says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Speaking to Christians, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The persecution is oftentimes a means of testing one's faith. And the way to endure the testing, by the way, according to Revelation chapter 2, is to be faithful. Be faithful unto God. Another example of testing in the Scriptures that we see is in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when Moses is speaking to God's people, he reminds them of the of the ways that God provided for them in the wilderness. When they had nothing, God provided this manna from heaven. So sometimes God tests us through what we lack. Maybe it's lacking financial provision or in some other way, some other kind of need that oftentimes can be a testing of your faith. Will you trust in God in those moments? One more example is in the Apostle Paul's own life. In 2 Corinthians 12, Though it doesn't have the word trial or testing, but I think we can broaden that out to include this very concept of the testing of the Christian. 
Paul speaks about this thorn in the flesh, something that God had put in his life, this physical ailment that he is pleading that God would take away, but the Lord does not. For his own sovereign purposes, this becomes a means of trial in the Apostle Paul's life, a means of his continuing to put his trust and dependency upon the Lord. Any moment or situation in your life when you are called to put your faith into action is a moment of trial. God means to prove your faith. Now what I mean by by proving your faith, I don't necessarily mean that God means to see whether or not it is genuine or if it's false if it's false faith, though sometimes it can have that effect. Like, for example, in, I mentioned this last week in the parable of the sower, and some of the seeds were sown on rocky soil, and this is descriptive of those who receive the word of God with gladness, but when the testing comes, they merely fall away. They don't consider Jesus Christ to be worth following with their life. But by proving, what I mean is to try it, like metal is put to the fire and to strengthen it. When a metalsmith, say, is trying to craft a dagger, for example, he has to, he takes a small piece of metal, perhaps rectangular in shape, and he heats that metal to make it malleable, to soften it. And then he takes the hammer and continues to pound away over and over again to give it shape. This is the process, the process of forging. And then later comes the process of tempering the metal. And this is a repeated process. This is the process by which the metal, after it is, has been shaped and fashioned by the metalsmith, is to put this metal under the heat, just under critical point, and then letting it air cool. And the purpose is to harden the metal. The proving of your faith is the tempering of the metal of your faith. And while painful during the heating process, while painful even during the hammering, it is also intended to to cool off in order to strengthen the metal of your faith. So this is what testing is all about. And what we can learn from the Scriptures is that the testing of your faith is according to God's glorious purposes. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. This is Paul. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So we see God's sovereign purposes in the life of the Apostle Paul. This was a sort of a testing of his life, a testing that he endured for the rest of his life. Now, many will say and argue that this, that this particular thorn in the flesh was this, 
a physical malady, probably the loss of his sight. Three times he's pleaded with the Lord that it would be taken away, and God would not. And what's the purpose? He knows what the purpose is, to keep him from being conceited. In other words, it's to keep him humble. Humility right, is having perspective, the right perspective concerning yourself in relation to God. In other words, her humility tells you you're not the center of the world. You're not the most important person on the planet. Humility is to continually depend upon God over and over and over and over again. And what we see from this particular passage is that testing is intended to make you and me more Christ-like. Again, again, James chapter 1, verse 2. Count on all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is what trials are intended to do, to produce steadfastness in your life and in my life, this holy rigidness when it comes to the lures and the temptations of the world and even of our own flesh. Steadfastness is a word that means to abide under and to courageously bear up. Trials are necessary in the producing of steadfastness because trials teach us to keep ourselves in Christ and courageously stand in Christ. Moral philosophers and theologians define courage as the habits that enable a person to face difficulties well. I wonder, what are your habits like when you're facing trials? What do you tend to do? Do you become impatient? Do you tend to take matters into your own hand? Do you become incredibly discouraged? Do you become... Habits, the habits of our lives that are revealed when we suffer trial tells us a lot about our character. The scriptures mean to give us habits that will help us to courageously stand in the midst of trials and face difficulties well. This is why James says you should count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because you know it's intended to produce good. It's intended to help you to produce steadfastness. It's intended to help you to lean upon the Lord Jesus and develop your character so that you may become much more Christ-like. So if you want to respond to trials, you must learn steadfastness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, I won't read the passage, but again, this is Moses speaking to God's people and reminding God's people of how God provided them in the wilderness and that God humbled them and tested them so that they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, for them, their experience, the most important thing about their experience is not 
that God provided this miracle over their lives, but it is that God provides. Tests are intended to humble us and to get us to a place where we are trusting in the promises of God. They're intended to help us to lean on the Lord as our provider. God, while 10 million people and only 5 million of those actually take this UPSC exam in India, Christian, all Christians without exception, are put through the university of God for the testing of their faith. And what we learn in the school of God is that some lessons cannot be learned from books, some lessons cannot be learned from other individuals, some lessons cannot be learned from sermons. Some lessons cannot even be learned from the Scriptures. Some lessons can only be learned by experience. Now please hear me. I'm not trying to tell you that the Scriptures are not sufficient. I'm not trying to tell you that you shouldn't read the Scriptures, but the Scriptures teach us how to bear under those trials. But it is up to you and it's up to me whether or not we want to apply what the Scriptures teach us. Some things, such as steadfastness, can only be learned through experience. When we think about the tests that we are called to endure, There might even be several aims, aside from being more Christ-like, to learn steadfastness. 1 Peter 1.22 is an interesting passage. Again, this is, a, this is a book written to suffering Christians who are undergoing trial. 1 Peter 1.22, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's a purification over our souls that happens when we are obedient to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially when we are obedient under trials. And what's it for? For a sincere brotherly love. So the tested genuineness of your faith and remaining steadfast under trials, not only does it show your allegiance and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also shows your loyalty to one another. For when someone is tested and falls away, not only do they fall away from God, but they also forsake the fellowship of his saints. And what the testing does at times is that it also purifies our love for one another as we as we encourage one another through suffering, as we are encouraged through suffering, as we experience particular trials, maybe at the same time, the same kind of trial, these things have a way of working love in us towards one another. First Peter 4.12 Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
speaking to Christians who are specifically being persecuted for their faith, but I think the general idea still applies about the testing of one's faith, whether it's due to persecution or not. Trials are intended to prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. Right? It's like standing outside on a hot day, 100 degree weather, and then, stand, and then coming into a building that is cooled with an AC. Right? It's, it's, it's a relief. It's nice. That when Jesus Christ returns, we will experience an indescribable relief. It's like receiving a drink of water when you have been thirsting for days upon days upon days. That is intended to increase your joy in the salvation of Christ because you know that when you see him face to face, that is when all the trials will be done. When the testing will be done and you can proclaim, I have passed the test. And I am now with Christ. Again, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That is the, that is the goal. Receiving the crown of life. That is what we're after. I can bring it back to this illustration of forging metal. When someone is forging metal, what somebody say is, is trying to forge a dagger, they have to look for certain defects, whether it's the warping of the metal or bending, they have to look for flakes in the metal or cracks, because if they see those things and they try to produce a finished product, when you put that thing to the test, most likely it's going to crumble. It's going to break because there's cracks in the metal. You see, what the Lord does is that he takes us to the forge and he looks for certain defects in the metal of our faith. And if he sees those defects, well, it's back to grinding again, to forging again, to heating the metal again and shaping it and making sure that those cracks are gone so that because his intention, his goal, is to fashion the metal of your faith into a golden crown that he will present to you when you come to the finish line. So God has glorious purposes in the testing of one's faith. Sometimes they're uniquely orchestrated according to your particular situation, maybe because God means to test you in a certain way. Sometimes situations that come into our lives and God reworks it or repurposes it to bring about some good in your life. Regardless, even though we know that there are glorious purposes, that God even is, is, is behind the testing of your faith, this might still be a reality that is difficult to accept. And why might it be difficult to accept? Right, because if we're honest, right, we don't want to be tested. We don't like tests. We don't like exams. Testing is hard. Trials are hard. You've been through trials already. Some of you are probably in a trial right now and you wish that it was over with. We don't like trials. 
We're all, I think, per- familiar with personality tests like Myers-Briggs, right, that tells you things about one's personality. You take them for personal interests. Sometimes businesses, organizations tell prospective employees to take these tests just to see what they're like, to see if they would work well with others. And these are helpful, right? They tell you things about yourself, about introversion or extroversion. They tell you if, say, you are, have these particular leadership skills or whether you can work well with others, whether you are, have an administrative or organized mind, or it's helpful in that way. But the one thing that those tests don't reveal to you is your character. They don't tell you anything about your character. Personality test isn't going to tell me whether or not I can trust you, whether I can confide in you, whether you're critical, whether you're loyal, whether you're an impatient person, whether you're given to anger. They don't tell you those things. While God cares a lot about your personality, God cares much more about your character. And the testing of God is to produce your character. And character is tested, revealed, and produced in the crucible of trials. Now, if you're wondering why are we given certain trials that might seem unbearable, by some might lose a spouse, some might lose children, some might be plagued with a particular illness or disease that they struggle with for the rest of their life. Why does this person go through this? Why does this person go through that? Why does this person have, doesn't have to go through this? Or why doesn't this person have to go through that? To be honest, I don't know why. I don't know why some go through some things and some don't go through other things. But what I do know, according to the Scriptures, that we have a good God. And whatever the test might be, God intends to bring good out of it. God means to draw you closer to Him. God means to help you to lean more upon Him. They're not intended for you to fail. God does not want anybody to fail the test. But even when they seem unbearable, God has already, God, God has given you the answer key. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's given you your word, but it is up to you whether or not you want to put His word into action. So the testing of our faith matters. The thing about the testing of our faith is also it's an act of love. And as parents, right, we, perhaps more than we realize, we put our children to the test. And it's an act of love. Like say, for example, we have a 16-year-old who just got their license and asked, hey, can I take the car to meet with my friends at the mall. There's a moment of testing right there, right? because you as a father or a mother can say, you have your license, sure, I will trust you right, to, go, to go exactly where you're going 
to bring the car back in one piece and to return at a certain time. Right? It's an act of love to put that kind of trust in your children. And it is a test to see whether or not they have the character to do what they said they will do. But you will never know if you can trust them unless you can put, unless they, you put them in that position where you have to trust them. And that reveals their character. The testing of your faith is an act of love from a heavenly Father who desires for you to grow in Christ-likeness. Elizabeth Elliot, in her classic book, Keep a Quiet Heart, she reminds us, when Paul and Silas were in prison for preaching the gospel, they prayed and they sang. It isn't troubles that make saints, but their response to troubles. If you're thinking about habits, the habits that you, kinda, you tend to have under trials, consider adopting the habits of praying and worshiping the Lord in the midst of trials. That's a good habit to develop. Trials reveal character, and trials are intended to develop character. A lot more could be said, but let me conclude with this. That trials are for your good, and they're for my good, and they're ultimately also for the glory of God. How is that so? Because whenever our faith is tested, whenever we are put in a position where we have to trust in the Lord as our provider, we are required to trust in the Lord as our sustainer, it shows the magnificent worth of Jesus Christ when we do lean upon the Lord. It shows that He is worth it. It shows that he can be trusted, that he is worthy to be trusted, that he is worthy of our life. The thing about trials as a Christian is that they have hope, that they are for a purpose. But when you suffer, when you go through trials as somebody who isn't a Christian, right, yeah, you might learn some things about those trials, but in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it will, it will be for nothing. But the hope of the gospel is that the trials are not accidents. The trials we experience actually mean something. And at the end of the trials, that there is actually hope. The question is whether or not we will be patient enough to wait upon the Lord and to trust Him. And as we wait, as we remain patient, as we trust in the Lord, we give God glory because it shows that through our lives that God is worthy of this test, that God is worthy of our admiration, that God is worthy of our trust. Because we make a decision that I will continue to follow the Lord and trust Him in this trial rather than turn away and turn my back, and walk in the other direction. So it gives God glory when we trust in Him, and we confide in Him. Now, I'm not saying that we should be <laughs> praying for all the trials that we can experience, but rather, my hope and prayer is that we can respond to trials differently. 
that we can see them, as hard as they might be, we can, we can see them as an opportunity for blessing. That we can, as James tells us, count to joy because the trial is intended to produce our character that we may produce steadfastness, the steadfastness that we all need in order to run the race and cross the finish line and receive the crown of life that God has forged through the metal of your faith. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you work all things for the good of those who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose. God, help us to rest in your promises that are written for us in your scriptures. Lord, help us to be a people who are steadfast under trial. Lord, would you help us to be patient Help us to not come to a point where we are experiencing a debilitating discouragement, but that we may have hope, that we may continue to have hope. And we do have great hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Savior who came and lived and died and rose again so that he may call us to himself through our faith in him and so that he may keep us and preserve us through the trials we experience and one day receive the crown of life. We look forward to that day. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.